Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Paul Mort, who is a fellow fitness instructor. So in fairness to him, he's a real fitness instructor. I, I just stopped uh, fat, flabby sales teams from wasting vast amounts of time and money. So oh, Paul, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are? And your journey so far in... Good, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that, mate. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm on and I'm buzzing. Pleasure. I'm excited to share my insights and, and shoot the shit, basically. I am, right now, UK Master Coach of the Year and work with married businessmen who need to get their shit together. So essentially, their business is doing okay, but the rest of their life's fucked. And I've ended up here by accident. Your timing is shit because my wife has just walked through. The, 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 oh, fantastic. So cool. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> Amazing, amazing, and I say that I say that you know, but I've I've actually just started, almost being coerced into working with women a little bit as well now because they're just getting on my fucking case all the time. Right now, I'm getting to work with women. So my main my main business is work with married businessmen who need to get their shit together. I do that through online coaching, seminars, public speaking, and my book, audio books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I ended up here almost by accident. Because in 2014, I was suicidal. I built a successful um, direct response marketing company and supplement company. And I lived in a four-bedroom villa with a private pool in Marbella. And I hated myself. I was five stone overweight, being diagnosed bipolar. I was doing loads of drinking, snorting loads of coke. My marriage was falling apart. And um, that moment in 2014 was the moment where I was like, yeah, I need to get my shit together. I need to get my shit together. And that just led me on a journey of doing just that. Lost five stone, got in shape, cured my bipolar, got over panic attacks and anxiety, these panic attacks that I was having, helped a bunch of other people do the same. And it's kind of just grew from there. Yeah, and this all from a guy that left school with two GCSEs, one in French and one in Spanish. Oh, hey. Interesting, varied story. Did you master the shrug? Did I master? Oh, I do, yeah. That's the feeling that I get when I watch most, most motivational videos. Eh. Right. So let's kick off with that. Motivational speaking bollocks. Yeah. Why does that industry persist? The industry persists because people are addicted to dopamine. Anything that makes them feel better. The same reason alcohol exists, because it makes you feel better. The same reason people take drugs, to make them feel better. So the motivational speaking industry motivational videos exist just because it makes people feel a little bit better. Most of the time, it makes people feel better for not doing anything. Because essentially, most motivational speaking, don't get me wrong, by the way, this is what I do for a living as well. I just do it in a very different way. Is just people telling you to believe in yourself. Mm. And I, I did a video on this yesterday, actually. I'm like, in yourself just sounds fucking weird. <laughs> Tell me about some of your beliefs. Well, in myself. It's not a fucking belief. It doesn't even make sense. In yourself just sounds like, I remember a rumor at school where everyone used to say Prince had had his two, two bottom ribs removed so he took his own dick. That's essentially what Yeah, remember that. Apparently there was someone else as well earlier on about someone that's had, had his ribs removed. But yeah, it exists because it makes people feel good. And I suppose that's what most people's job is to make themselves feel better. Think about this in your game. Most people have some kind of story about why they can't pick up the phone. And it's because it's to make themselves feel better. So our job as a human is essentially to make ourselves feel better. So we do whatever we can to do that. So where does motivation really come from? Well, so for me, motivation is just another word for energy. 
That's it. It's another word for energy. So motivation is energy. I'm not motivated basically means I have no energy. I'm motivated means usually that I'm working towards a target or an outcome that energizes me. That's it. And most of the time, if you're lacking motivation, it's because you're doing something that you fucking hate doing. Anything that requires permanent motivation, anything that requires you to have willpower all the time means you're doing something that you don't fucking like doing. You're never going to create a life that you love doing things that you loathe all the time. So that then brings me to the original reason why we got in contact, which is the whole myth around procrastination. So define for me what you think people misconceive procrastination to be. People treat procrastination like some kind of fucking disease. It's a decision. It's a decision where you are valuing doing something else over the thing that you could be doing. It's essentially that because nobody's never doing nothing. So if a guy comes in my program and I'm like, dude, you need to fill in your journal, your daily journal, you need to have a plan. Oh, I didn't fill it in last week. I'm like, well, what were you doing instead? Because you weren't doing nothing. You were doing something else that at that moment you valued more than doing the thing that was required. So essentially you saw more perceived benefits in watching a cat playing the piano on YouTube (laughs) than perceived benefits of doing the work. That's essentially it all. You maybe just saw more perceived, let's just say it's, a, it's about putting a live video out, for example. You saw more perceived drawbacks in doing the live video than perceived benefits in doing the live video. So it's essentially just going to come down to drawbacks and benefits, positives and negatives, advantages and disadvantages. And whichever one you see the most of, that's the one you're going to follow. Like everybody knows drinking is not good for you, right? Everybody knows the perceived drawbacks of boozing regularly right but at the moment where you're going to have a drink all you can see is perceived benefit so that's essentially what procrastination is you are you are valuing and you are putting more perceived benefits more perceived positives on the shit that you're doing instead i.e watching cats playing the piano you put more perceived benefits on that than perceived benefits of doing what's required okay so this then brings me to two areas that i'd like to investigate One is the internal narrative, that self-talk. And the other, which is closely related to that, is self-concept. And I differentiate between self-esteem and self-concept. I think self-concept is being comfortable in your own skin for being who you are. Yes. And self-esteem, I think, is tied more closely to ego. And more often than not, it's actually quite harmful because it makes us brittle, fragile, unwilling to take risk. Yeah. So do you mind taking that thought a little bit? I think a lot of the time, do you know, I think a lot of the time people almost think they have to do things without these negative feelings. Like, Paul, I need more self-confidence. I'm like, well, the only way you're going to get confidence is by doing the thing. Confidence isn't just going to show up. Again, it's like, okay, well, I think most people, Marcus, want to guarantee. I don't think they're looking for more self-belief. I don't think they're looking for more confidence. I don't think they're looking to believe in themselves. I think they're just looking for guarantees. That's what most people want. They want to guarantee that the person they're calling isn't going to tell them to fuck off and die. That's what they want to guarantee of. They want to guarantee that everybody's going to say yes. They want to guarantee that it's going to be comfortable. And unfortunately, that doesn't exist. I think all of this other stuff, all of those other sayings, procrastination, self-sabotage, What's the other thing that I'm loving at the minute? Imposter syndrome, lack of self-belief, self-loathing, self-this, self-that. It's all just that looking for a guarantee that everything's going to be fine. 
They're not going to feel silly. They're not going to get laughed at. They're not going to be mocked. And unfortunately, that doesn't exist. So you've got to do it with the fear. You've got to do it without confidence. You've got to do it with self-doubt. You've got to do it with the fact that you might get laughed at. The only guarantee that we're going to really give is that nobody's ever died by being told no on the phone. No, thank you. It's not for me. Do you know what I mean? That's, the only, that's what I think all of this hyperbole or hyperbole or whatever you fucking say it, I think all of that is just code for something else, which is we want to guarantee that everything's going to go our way. It's really interesting that you say that because one of the fundamental lessons I've learned along the way is that if you don't risk, then chances are you're guaranteeing failure. And more often than not, what people want to avoid is failure because they see failure as a personality defect instead Dude, of amazing. human condition. Amazing. Do you know what I say to people? I'm like, if you were not doing the things required to get what you want because you might fail, you're already fucking failing. The yeah. difference is, Marcus, I think, you're failing in private. Because <laughs> people don't, aren't really scared of failing. They're scared of looking like a failure or feeling okay. like a failure. So again, what's the root of that? I'm not sure. The root of that, the root of that is they just don't want to feel bad. And I think, do you know, I think that one of our most natural, I already read this a few weeks ago and it made loads of sense to me because I get a lot of criticism. A lot of criticism. Really? I'm surprised. (laughs) Two death threats just last year. I was actually, I felt like a failure because I only got two. (laughs) But I still working on my set. Yeah. And I think a lot of the fear is, and again, I only read this a couple of weeks ago, is I think one of our biggest fears, and one of mine is, is not the criticism. It's like being ostracized from the tribe. I think I'm not scared of the criticism of like one or two people. It's when people start to gang up. Like, I think that's probably the biggest fear, being ostracized from the group, ostracized from the tribe or the gang. Well, that's quite a natural fear. It's totally natural. Totally natural. So I think that's the I think that's the biggest thing that challenges people is that they think because one person said this, that means everyone thinks that. And they're gonna look like and feel like because you think about it, like you probably get so many people that are like, I really want to start this business, but I really want to do this, but what's the very worst that could happen? I'll have to live with my mom. That's the very worst that could happen. The very worst case scenario is that you'll feel a little bit fucking silly. The reality is you probably already feel silly for not doing the thing that you said you want to do. So, yeah, I think it's just, it, it, we just throw a lot of what I call, almost all of it's just justification. Like, I need to believe in myself as a justification. All of that is just a justification for, I'm fucking scared. Well, that then comes back to that self-talk, internal narrative. We often inherit. We teach a lot of transaction analysis. Yeah. And the idea that you have this parent script that switches off uh, recording from about the age of six and then just yeah. plays, on, plays on permanent loop yeah. in the background. Yeah. And a lot of these beliefs seem to be inherited yeah. and then they're amplified and you catastrophize. You find evidence in your head as well that your ego will show you any image it can. Absolutely. There's a fabulous book called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Yes. And the subtitle goes something like, 47 ways that you're probably already making yourself miserable. (laughs) And the reality is that the majority of people in business, in life, when they're finding themselves at a low point, I think are probably amplifying it. Because I I, I look back at the disasters in my life, of which most of them have been self 
generated. Yeah. And I look back at how it felt at the time, and now I look back. It's kind of like childbirth. You, you kind of wonder, given the amount of pain that women have to go through on the first one, why they'd have a second, third, fourth, or fifth. But you know, we, we forget, and we forget the pain, and yes. it passes. And in business, you know, no one has ever died from making a bad cold call. I did, you know, for many years, I've had a bounty of £1,000 if you could kill a prospect that by doing a really good pain discovery step. Yeah. I almost had to pay out once because one of my clients was phoning the, I think it was the marketing director of Wedgwood. And right. she did such a good job that she uh, drove into the back of a flatbed lorry. Oh, uh, holy she shit. Yeah, she didn't die, so it didn't count. Um, <laughs> so talk to me about the kind of scripting that people will run that cause that gives them the excuse for not taking decisive action. I'll tell you what I'll give you. I will give you. So this week I was doing a bit of research for a training that I've got coming up and I found, I was here the other day, I found some notes from an event that I went to in 2016. It was in Laguna Beach, California. And I wrote these things down. The exercise must, must have been something like, what are the top narratives that you are running that are justifying why you haven't made progress, Ooh, right? Very nice. And I wrote these four things down and they were really interesting. So the biggest justification that I was making at the time was based on past experience, which was, bearing in mind in 2014, I was suicidal, I built this business and I fucking hated it. And I just, my capacity was just poor, right? I've been diagnosed bipolar, had all this shit going on. My number one story was, I knew how to build, so this stuff that I do now, the unstoppable stuff, I had like five clients, right? And the guy that was running this event that was at was always on my case. Paul, why are you why are you pissing around so much with this business? You know what to do. Most people know what to do to make more money, Marcus, right? Even if it's not the best way, they know a way to make more money. They're just not doing it for whatever reason. My justification, my story was I won't be able to handle it. it wasn't that I wouldn't be able to do it, it was that I wouldn't be able to handle more people, right? because of my previous experiences. My other one was I have bipolar, right? Which again, now I know that I don't take meds or anything now. I literally do not have bipolar. The third one was I'm not very good with money, right? That clearly comes from past conditioning and being broke at some point in my life. And I looked at these stories and I was like, actually the, the exercise that we had to do then was, and I saw it on a piece of paper, I'd say it was across out the, the sentence or the, the, the justification and write, fuck you next to it. And then I had to write the opposite of that sentence. So one of them was something like, I'm a badass and I can handle anything. The second one was, actually, one of them was, I'm terrible on the phone, mate. One of them was, I'm terrible on the phone, because guess what? Back then, the evidence was that I was terrible on the phone. That second sentence had been changed to, um, I'm a closer. And it's funny, I hadn't found those pieces of paper until, I hadn't even looked at them again until Sunday. They were just torn up bits of paper. So that narrative actually came from a couple of things. One, past experiences. And two, how I framed those past experiences as well. The filter that I had on those past experiences. Because I could have put, think about that, if I'm terrible on the phone, clearly I wasn't closing people and I was spending a lot of... So I think the thing is, when you've been any kind of coach... You'll know this, mate, as well as me, that when you want to help people, you tend to help them too much on a sales call. So that by the end of the sales call, the thinkers don't need you anymore. <laughs> That's what I used to do. I used to get so excited. I'd give them the solution on the phone and they wouldn't, they'd be like, oh, well, uh, and they'd pull all these stalls up. So clearly my evidence was I'm shit on the phone. 
But if I'd have framed it a different way, I could have been like, I need to make improvements on the phone. I could do with getting some help on how to close these people, et cetera, et cetera. So that whole narrative will come from past experiences. The whole I'm terrible with money thing, that probably came from my mom and dad. Neither of my mom and dad are being self-employed. My mom worked in Asda, and my dad worked in the same factory on the floor for 35 years. So my conditioning was from them, but also based on past experiences. But I think more importantly, my perception of the past experiences. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, I mean, being poor is a condition. Being broke is a state of mind. Yes. Yeah, dude, I love that. I love that. And I think that you may get asked this, and I get asked this on a lot of podcasts, which is what your biggest regrets. I'm like, well, it's cheesy, but I don't really have any because I would if I didn't make those fuck-ups or whatever we want to call them, or decisions, which is what they were, a, a mistake made more than once isn't really a mistake, it's a decision. So I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, actually, I wouldn't be doing what I do now if I didn't do all that shit. There's a simple rule. If it happens once, it's a coincidence. Twice, it's a pattern. Three times in a row, it's definitely your fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a decision. It's all the, I think a lot of it's decisions, distractions. People talk, oh, I get distracted all the time. No, mate, you decide to have your fucking phone on all the time. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I say this all the time, that's all a decision. It's like going to a titty bar and saying you're not going to look at the tits. If your phone's around, you're going to get distracted, mate. Leave it in the fucking car. So yeah, I don't know how we've ended up talking about tits, but I knew I'd fit it in somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me this then, the work that you do with your clients. Yes. How do you set expectations so that they understand that it, it's their responsibility, yeah. not yours. Because I, certainly as a coach, what you often find is that there's a danger of creating learned helplessness. Yes. And by doing that, you actually become an accomplice yes. instead of an ally. Yeah, I do. So how do you frame the expectation? And you know, this is something that I've, that I've struggled with for quite a while in that I've worked with a lot of guys and a lot of these guys come in with a, with a bit of a... Um, Billy Big Balls, but a little bit of a victim mindset. But I think what I'm able to do before clients come in is that I think my pre-work, i.e. my content, my emails, my videos, my webinars, etc. one of the first things I'll say is like, listen, this is your responsibility. The first thing you've got to do is stop pointing the finger. Every time you point the finger at something, someone, some challenge, some virus, <laughs> you lose power. You lose power every single time. So I kind of pre-frame it before anybody comes into my program. They kind of know that's what I am and who I am. But then I think that the best thing that I've been able to do was stop giving so much advice and started asking more questions, i.e. ask questions that would give them the same answer that I would give them, but they come up with it themselves. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, that's essential in coaching. Coaching coaching versus mentoring, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the, the big challenges when you are a coach is to make sure that you stay out of the way. So do you have any ground rules that you implement for yourself to ensure that you are staying as a coach yes. as opposed to being a, a mentor or a rescuer? Yeah, do you know, mate, that, I love the fact that you landed that last word on the end because for two years, I was exhausted from giving people advice and then wondering why the fuck they're not implementing it. Why are you not doing this, man? You take the problems home. So now it becomes a case of almost always starting with a question, 
And th- there's one question that I have in particular, which I got off my friend Nikki V, which was, what are you knowingly doing that's preventing you from resolving this? What are you knowingly doing? That's And that question instantly, they can tell us, everyone wants to tell that story at the start. You know, people, I want to tell the story. Well, this is this and that's that. And he did this and she did this and that. That's my, my question to take away all of the, not all of that, to, to put them back into being empowered, i.e. responsible, is what are you knowingly doing that's preventing you from resolving this? That's literally the only thing that I do different. Because then that, that just opens up a whole new different world. And I just find myself asking more questions rather than giving answers. Okay. And you listen your way into being a good coach. And in the same way that you do in sales, you know, I've listened my way into many a sale and I've talked my way out of even... <laughs> Dude, yeah. um, in terms of teaching people to listen, what do you do there? Because you've got this noise in your head, you've got this internal narrative, mm-hmm. you've got a, a, a groundswell of noise from outside mm-hmm. telling you what you can and can't, should and shouldn't do. Yes. How do you help people to... To listen. Listen to themselves. Yeah. Do you know what my favourite weapon is? My weapon of choice. Pen and paper. Dude, there's so many people have exposed so much of their own bullshit by just writing it down. By just writing it down. So we have a, we have a strategy for guys that are, that are just having a challenging day or their state is low or they're having challenging feelings, right? Or unhelpful feelings. It's just... We have a, a little system that goes, how do you really feel? Write down. You have to write it down. Because your brain will catastrophize, your mind and your ego will show you anything to prove that it's right. How do you really feel? Like, what's the actual emotion you're experiencing? Two, what does that mean? Give it some meaning. Then three, this is my favorite question. How do you want to feel? Most people get so obsessed with how they don't want to feel and what they don't want to be going on and what they don't want to be happening that they can't create any kind of strategy to fix it. So that's just, and then the fourth one is what are you willing to do about it? So a lot of the time, my favorite thing for getting people to listen to themselves is journal. Not in a Dear Diary, Adrian Mole kind of way. You know what? A lot of the guys I work with are like, Adrian who? <laughs> it's Adrian who? I'm like, forget about it, dude. Let's just say Dear Diary. It's just to get them to journal and ask themselves great questions. Well, I'd take it one step further, which is once they have journaled that fear, yes. then to say it out loud. Nice. And my experience of that is that it massively weakens the hold because when you hear it in your own voice, you realize just what a crock of shit it is. Uh, dude, I love that. Yeah, dude, I love that. Yeah, yeah. You're like, really? It's almost like what, what I say to the guys a lot of the time is that and I learned this from a lady that I worked with back in 2015 called Byron Katie. I did a nine-day nine day school for the work. She was amazing. And she's like, you almost, if you had to present that statement to a fucking jury, in court <laughs> they'd be like bro are you kidding me because you'd have no evidence really of it being true the evidence would be complete or straight it'd be thrown out of court so that's I love that verbalisation of it yeah like do you know like, every, do you, you probably had this during this coronavirus which is nobody's got any money really? right at the start oh, no one's we had it right at the start oh, no one's goes through the global economy every day yeah dude we had guys right at the start of the, of the coronavirus who were shitting their pants when people say they have no money, what they're saying is no one's spending it with me. <laughs> That's all. Our yeah. sales have gone up. We've had a great coronavirus. I mean, you know, th- there's the human cost, which is horrific. But I- I've not one of my clients has taken a backward step. And I- I've got clients who are doing anywhere between 140 and 220% of quota. 
whilst their peers who I'm not training or coaching are doing 40 to 60. Dude, we had our right on quarter as well. But at the start, I must admit, I did have a little bit of a, it felt a bit weird to be selling mindset, personal development stuff right at the start. But then my friend asked me a question. He said, Paul, who suffers if you don't offer your program? Just said that. Who suffers if you don't offer your program? I'm like, well, the people that need my help will suffer because they're not, you know what it's like, dude, people that don't pay tend to not pay attention. The real people whose lives I can chill are the people that join my program. And then I said, well, I suffer because I don't make as much money as I could. My family suffers because I'm going to be a grouchy prick because no one's buying my product. Basically, everybody suffers if I don't sell. And I remember one of the first ever, I'm not a massive mantra or what are the affirmations guy. Not a massive mantra and affirmations guy. It's not really, I mean, could you imagine me standing in front of a mirror saying how great I am? But I'm not, it's not my stuff I can, but I'm not going to go down. <laughs> it's just not my bag. It's not my bag. Sometimes I write the odd thing down if I need to. I write that myself a message that I need to hear that day. Yeah. But I remember one mantra that I got, the first ever affirmation that I heard, I was 22, right? And it was a friend of mine at the time, he said to me, have you heard this affirmation? And it was money flows freely and easily to me. And this is my favorite bit, for the greater good of all. I'm like, well, actually, yeah, when I get paid, it's great for everybody. It's great for me. It's great for my family. It's great for my staff because they still get paid. It's great for the person who pays me. It's great for their family. It's great for their friends. great for everybody when I get paid. That was a total mindset shift for me around selling. Because I think that's the, you, you know the deal, mate. Most people's problem with, do you ever get guys who are like, hate selling? I bet you don't. But there's a lot of guys yeah. in the industry, oh, I hate selling. No, you don't hate selling. You hate being rejected, mate. What worries me more is the number of business leaders who hate sales and salespeople, and then they whine and moan and bitch and complain when salespeople aren't doing their numbers. And you know, that, that, that's a horrifically stupid thing, because you know, without sales, then nothing there's happens. No business. No, there's no business. I mean, you, you touched on another really important point. I, I did a podcast with a good friend of mine, Jody Williamson, which was entitled, Why Do You Have No Right Not to Sell Now? Bit of a mouthful. I love that, yeah, but yeah. If, if you are not selling, you are doing your customers and your prospects a monumental disservice. I agree. You have something that can help them. Yeah. And part of the problem is that so many people do not believe what they're selling is important or meaningful. Now, if that's the case, then what the hell are you doing selling it? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and it's like people. if you have a product that can... Imp- positively impact somebody's life, it's your moral and ethical duty to fucking sell it. Absolutely. Moral and ethical duty, because guess what? If they don't... (laughs) I'm going to use this as a terrible example, but if you don't fuck your wife, somebody else will. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? If they don't spend their money with you, who has the best product, you're the best service, and they need need to solve this problem, they're going to go and get the problem solved elsewhere. With the guy down the road who you say is shit. He's just got bigger balls than you. Well, more often than not, if you look at the failure in sales, actually, it's the prospects don't object unless the seller takes them there. And more often than not, you don't lose the sale. You are outsold. You are either outsold by your own internal narrative and you bought what the prospect was bullshitting you with or um, <laughs> you're outsold by a better competitor. And it doesn't matter whether the product or service is better or worse. The reality is that in this day and age, virtually all products and services are of a muchness. A CRM system is a CRM system. 
And the reality is, if you don't spend enough time looking at the world as if you were your customer, then you're focused on the wrong end of the problem again. Because you're focused on selfish returns in that what you think about, if you think about the customer rather than thinking as the customer, then you do both of you a massive disservice. Because I think people don't understand the, the whole concept of service. They think that service means servitude, and it's anything but. I do a lot of work around the channel, so working through third parties, selling through third parties. Yeah. And the way we define partners is you help each other get better. And that's the kind of relationship that you should be aiming for with your customers. Yeah. So it's a two-way operation. So you yeah. provide them with a product or service that helps them to resolve their problem. They pay you money. And as part of your compensation, they help you improve your product and service so you can serve them better. But very few salespeople and very few vendors or organizations understand that fundamental truth. So tell me this. You've got a prospect who's come to you and they're complaining about their lot in life. How do you get them to recognize that they have to own and take responsibility for where they are. Mm. Whilst there's this catastrophizing victim narrative that's complaining about how unfair life is. Yeah. And and get them past that in a way that leaves their dignity intact. It's a couple of things, really, which is that that question that I asked you before, which was, what are you knowingly doing that's preventing you from resolving this? Or something along, along the lines of, bringing yes into play or bringing no into play would be, are you open to the fact that you may have played some part in this, at least some small part? And then I'm asking them a leverage-based question, which was, well, okay, how's this impacting you then? And I always say this. I don't say, if I say, what are you normally doing that's preventing you from resolving this? And they'll answer the question. I'll go almost away from the original story and I'll say, how's this impacting you? And what I mean by that is, how's the second part of it? Does that make sense? So the first problem is being presented to me in a victim, his, her, them, it, et cetera, et cetera, this victim moment. And I'm almost taking that off the table now once they've said, here's how I'm preventing myself from resolving it. And then I'm going down the route of how is that impacting you? What does it cost you in the past? What might happen if you don't get a handle on this in the future? So that question of what are you knowingly doing that's preventing you from resolving it, that almost, it's like, it wipes out the first part of the question. Does that make sense? I want to get them away from that first part and into the, what are you knowingly doing that's preventing you from getting a handle on that? A great question I've found extremely helpful is who pays the negative price for your positive payoff? If you say stuff, then who is paying that price? Sometimes it's you. But more often than not, it's the people around you, the people that you're meant to love. Who else is it impacting? Yeah. Absolutely. Who else is that impacting and how? And what might happen if you don't get a handle on it? Who benefits if you get a handle on it? So this then comes to the next really important question, which is, if you say yes to this now, what other promise or commitment will you have to break? Dude, I love that. Yeah. Because so often people will go for what's easy, convenient, and adjacent of course. rather than what's necessary. So you know, when we talk about procrastination, it is a choice. It's a decision yep. that you would prefer in yep. the moment 
yeah. uh, to have the comfort or convenience of whatever you're doing, rather than getting that long-term payoff. So, key question. Yeah. How do you help people create the emotional attachment to the long-term payoff yes. so that they find the motivation when they need it to do what's difficult when doing the other thing? I love this question. I love this question because I think it's kind of like selling, but you're selling yourself on an idea, right? You've got to be able to sell yourself on a concept. So a real simple way that we're going to do this is, I think some bit, you know, about pain and pleasure and all of that. I think some days people are motivated by pleasure. And some days you're motivated by pain. I.e. the, I think a lot of the time... You're when talking it's, about your weekend, aren't you? <laughs> I am, yeah. And, but I think sometimes benefits, like what's the benefit if you get this done? I.e. get rid of the procrastination. What's the benefit of sending that email? What's the benefit of picking up the phone? What's the benefit of this? Sometimes I think that's enough to get people going. That's enough to get people going. But I think sometimes benefits can feel like a, it would be nice. And I think for a lot of people, that would be nice isn't enough to get them beyond discomfort or beyond resistance. So I think we've got to be aware of those benefits. The benefits of getting it done, who else benefits and how, all of that stuff. But I think the deeper question is always, what's the drawback if you don't get this done? What's the drawback if you keep fucking around? Who else suffers if you don't get this done and how? What are the negatives of not getting it done? What are the disadvantages you're going to have to face if you don't do that? So for me, I think it's nice to know both. There's a wonderful exercise, which is to write out your default future. If you carry on as you are, write out what your default future will look like 10 years from now. Where will you be living? Who will you be living with? What kind of role will you have? What income will you have? Yeah. Uh, what options and choices will you have? What will you yeah. miss out on? What will your health be like? And write that out. Pull pictures off the internet of the dive you'll live in, the anal... Uh, dude, so it's like the opposite of a vision board, right? It's the antithesis of a vision board. Yeah, the bullshit board. <laughs> and let that percolate for two to four weeks. Mm. And keep adding to it. And once it's settled and it's you've reached that... The nadir, the the bottom of the of the barrel. Then write your best alternative future. Dude, I love that. So if you juxtapose the two, that it's like when you speak to the extreme ends of your customer base. So raving fans mm-hmm. and people who fired you or hate you. Yeah, um, that's where you get the truth. And it's not the middle layer of mush. The people in the middle. Goodbye, yep. and because they can't really articulate why. And I think the same thing goes when we're looking into ourselves as to why we want to do something, why it's important and what drives us. We need to look at both extremes because that's where we find our truth. You know what else as well, Marcus? I think that often, and again, a lot of people will kind of brush this under the carpet, but I think it's also worth noting what benefits am I getting from this procrastination? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people will be like, well, what's the point of looking at that? I'm like, well, how else could you get that benefit that doesn't involve you putting off the work? You know what I mean? Yeah. So a lot of people, what benefit do I get from that? Well, I get entertainment. What benefit do you get from that? I get to avoid blank. What benefit do you get from that? Well, I really, I've always wanted to watch Cats play in the piano. But well, I'm like, okay, what? Well, the question. Yeah. Like, what, what's the positive payoff if I say yes to this now? Who pays that price? Yeah. The psychology of this 
yeah. is that the brain always tries to get you to find the benefit, yeah. to keep you safe. I think all of this is just about leverage. I don't have a massive problem with procrastination because I make promises to people. Like, I make promises to people, and I think for me, it may not be optimal, but it's optimal for me, which is I make promises to people who I fear letting down. If I tell my kids I'm going to be done by 3 o'clock, I'm not watching cats playing the piano. If I tell my kids I'm going to take them to this place here and do this, I'm not going to watch cats playing the piano. But I suppose that is actually, a lot of people will think, well, that's the benefit of you get to go here with the kids. Actually, there's a big drawback involved if I don't get it done either. And then I have to lie to my kids about why I, why I didn't get it done. Well, this then ties into something else which I come across very often, which is the curse of perfectionism. And I don't know if you've come across Brene Brown's work. The source of procrastination from her research is childhood shaming. Really? And absolutely. You were told that you were no good at art when you were drawing a horse and someone asked you if it was a dolphin, you know, something like that. But what's really interesting is that when you do scale it back, to those childhood moments where someone felt diminished, felt yeah. belittled. In TA, there's a concept called reach back and afterburn. Right. And it's where you reach back into your history yeah. and you drag the misery and the emotion of that moment into your present yeah. and you relive it. Now, yeah. you know, if you were bullied, for example, the bully doesn't even know you exist anymore, but you're still suffering because you can't yeah. let go. Yeah. And one of my mentors is a guy called Mark Goulston, who wrote a couple of fabulous books. One is called Just Listen, and the other one is Talking to Crazy. And Talking to Crazy really starts with talking to yourself. In my ears, it definitely starts with talking to myself. I'm not fighting you. <laughs> and he has a wonderful maxim, which is let go or be dragged. And this then ties to attachment. And you look in Buddhism. The Buddha says that attachment is the root to all misery. And you listen to... Byron Katie's the same. She's like, all suffering is meant, all suffering is here. You're playing those past events on repeat. Absolutely. You can't change the past event. It's not the past event that's, that's harming you or making you suffer. It's your thoughts about the past event that are making you suffer. So, again, one choice bit of advice that I would give to everybody is... Look at the things that, that you're attached to. Mm -hmm. And how does that attachment serve you? Because very often it doesn't. If you had attachment to improvement. So again, one of the lessons that I teach my clients is the half a percent rule. Mm -hmm. If you are half a percent better today than you were yesterday, and you make that your mission, over the course of a year, you're 273% yeah. better off. Yeah. Now, over two years, that's nearly 900%. Over three years, that's 27 times. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem I see is impatience because people want the quick fix. What they're looking for is instant gratification and they're looking for the hack. And so I think the, the self-help industry has done its target audience a massive monumental disservice and should be punished for it in hell. But what they've done is they've created this illusion that you could that change happens instantly and easily. Yes. And if anything but, if it pains you to do something, that requires courage. If it doesn't pain you, that's not an act of courage. 
people don't understand the difference between risk and sacrifice as well. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility that you might lose some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is going from higher value to lower value, and there's no upside. And I think people don't really understand the difference. And so they lump everything into sacrifice, but they call it, oh, I don't like taking risk. Yes. And so wrapping up, what would you advise people to do in order to be able to ensure that they recognize that they may lose? Dude, I love this. They can live with it. Dude, I love this because one thing that I teach and that I share when we're talking about marketing before is I'm a big believer in daily email. I've made a lot of money and a lot of sales out of daily email marketing. I would consider myself world-class at email marketing. And the challenge that I have is we have guys come in and learn email marketing from me. And then I pull, I haven't made any sales yet. How many have you sent? 13. Okay, cool. How long were you on my email list before you bought from me? About three years. So you read almost a thousand of my emails. In fact, 350. Yeah, over a thousand of my emails to buy. And you think you should be making sales after 14. So for me, I think in that case, in that patience thing, it's, it's really old school, but I think you've got to be clear on what progress actually is. Because if we just look at the sales you're making from email as the progress, it's only one indicator. What if just writing the email is progress? What if writing five emails this week instead of four was progress? What if more people just reading your email is progress? So for me, in terms of that patience thing, you've got to have multiple, you've got to have multiple ways to measure progress. And I think a lot of the time, confidence is going to come from progress. Confidence is going to come from action. In terms of risk, here's one for you. I've just offered Tyson Fury £17,000 to come on a podcast with me. People are like, are you fucking crazy? I might be, but they can't see that I can easily turn that £17,000 into £17,000. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it depends on, on what you see as... I think a lot of people, people just aren't clear enough on what progress actually is, on what a result actually looks like. People are like, oh, I want to get better at sales. I'm like, well, how will you know you're getting better? How will you know? Paul, I want to get better at this. I want to, well, how will you know you're getting better? What's your, what's your measurement? You know what? People, the, the other personal development thing that drives me fucking insane is people going, oh, you are good, you are good enough. You're enough. I'm not good. People are like, oh, well, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I'm like, A, good enough for what? Good enough for what? I'm just not good, good enough for what? B, how will you know that you're good enough? C, why is that a bad thing? I'll be very happy to know that I'm not good enough at something because then I'm like, oh, well, that's great. How can I get better? What do I need to well, do to improve? How will I know I'm improving? They, like, they, you know, you thought about that half a percent thing. Yeah. Like, I think that's amazing. We actually, in our MMA gym, that's what we talk about every day, get half a percent better every day. But a lot of the time it's like, well, how do I know I'm getting better? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do I know? Like in, in the gym, for example, I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You have no gi, which is fighting without your pajamas on. And you have gi fighting with the pajamas on. Now, I don't really like fighting with the pajamas on. It's hot. It's just a bit shit. I don't like it. But when I train no gi, there's, I don't know I'm getting any better because everybody else I'm training with is also getting better. But in the gi, it's called, you get stripes by the coach. You get another belt. That's the only reason I do it because now I know, again, it's somebody else's opinion but now I know I'm getting better. But also the other thing I track is, am I fucking showing up and training or not? I think a lot of the time people just have these, they have expectations, but they don't know what they are. I think one of the most important bits of genius that David Sandler brought into 
the sales system yeah. is this concept of I versus R, identity versus role. Identity is who you are. Yeah. Role is what you do. What you, what you do, and yeah. When people say you are enough as you are, yeah. what they should be referencing is identity. Because Paul Mort, the human being, absolutely enough. Yeah. But in terms of role performance, there's always room for improvement. Yeah, I love but that. What we see is that people find that they allow poor role performance to impact their self-concept, their yeah, identity. Yeah, yeah. And then you get this thing called role bleed. And yeah. that's really debilitating because that's where the narrative kicks in. And the internal voice says, you piece of shit. You've done it again, you lazy fat fuck. You're such and a... I think the words that we're looking for is the two words that, that just immediately put in mind for me. This happened or I did this, that means... And I think that's probably the bleeding thing. Well, this happened and that means that I am so-and-so. And this then brings us to the, uh, the next issue. One of the things that I found most useful is understanding the difference between the drama triangle which is the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And ego thrives on drama. So anytime you hear or take one of those three positions, that's someone's ego that's been hooked, and you get dragged into a psychological gameplay. The antithesis of this, Bruce Lee was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. Fucking awesome advice. And you don't have to be that far. You just have to be that far. Yeah. Yeah. Now, The winner's triangle, instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. Mm -hmm. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really powerful about this is that if you operate from the winner's triangle, if you operate from vulnerable, nurturing, and assertive, then you can never get dragged into one of those drama triangles into that psychological gameplay. Because mm. when you get dragged above the line into that drama, yeah. you're suffering from or making judgments and you have prejudice. You are whining, moaning, bitching, complaining. And no logic. No voice. logic. Again, I hesitate to say this. Well, actually, I don't. Fuck it. Human beings aren't logical creatures. Yeah. We're creatures of emotion and story. Yeah. That narrative is running away in the background. Yeah. Uh, and then we find ways to justify our behavior using reason and logic. But you only have to look at how people have managed to justify awful choices. Now, I don't want to get overly political here, but you only have to look at the Pentecostal and fundamentalist Christians in North America supporting Trump when yes. it's clear that he doesn't share their moral stance or their values. But they find a way of saying that he's you know, being brought from God, uh, yeah. no matter what the evidence is. <laughs> you see this in everyday life. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference whether it's you know, Trump or Brexit or whether you're a Remainer or a Lever. You'll look for and find the evidence to justify your position. Yeah, I think that something happened right at the start of this thing, and my friend wrote an email about it saying, and I work with a lot of business guys from every type of industry. I mean, we've got guys that run gyms, obviously, we've got builders, we've got guys that sell shuttlecocks on the internet, we've got guys that own subway stores, restaurant owners, forex traders, we've got all these different things, and and everybody reacting in a different way. My friend said, you know what, for a lot of people, they're saying COVID-19 fucked their business. 
and fuck them. And actually, what he said was, COVID-19 didn't fuck you, it exposed you. Absolutely. It exposed so many people. It exposed people who hadn't been taking care of their health. It exposed a lot of marriages and relationships. It exposed a lot of businesses that just relied on word of mouth. It exposed a lot of businesses that had no internet kind of web-based process to them, like WH Smith, I think, will go out of business next. There's a bunch of these things going on. It just exposed a lot of people. That's all crisis does. I did a, an interview with my friend Carlos Garrido right. on exactly this subject. Same thing, yeah. I mean, Never Waste a Good Crisis was the title of it. <laughs> and and it, a crisis actually creates opportunity. After the Black Death came, the plague, the Renaissance came. And yeah. what will happen? Will there will be a massive flourishing of creativity mm-hmm. coming out of this? Because the thing is, some people, and I've got so many different businesses that I could tell you about where two different people have reacted completely differently. We've got guys who guys who ran a gym, four men in Glasgow, ran a gym, now have more clients than they did before lockdown. Yeah. Whereas my wife's trainer, his business has gone under because he hid behind his set. These guys did something different. The other guys hid behind their set. I mean, dude, here's the thing. I mean, you won't have this problem, but my barber did a live Zoom training so my wife could cut my hair and not fuck it up. And I paid him for it. If a barber can do that, yep. nobody else has got any fucking excuse. My, my guy who trains in the MMA gym, so this is boxing, kickboxing, jujitsu, all the fighting stuff. He's been teaching Zoom classes where he had us stuff an empty jacket and fight an empty jacket. That's how creative he's got to be. And, and yep. someone asked me yesterday on Instagram, what businesses do you think will thrive after the coronavirus? I said, well, I don't know. I hadn't put enough thought into it, but there'll be businesses that thrive. But the ones that thrive the most will be the ones that have shown up the most during coronavirus. The ones that have shown up now are the ones that will flourish after corona. But some of them have just disappeared and hid behind their set ease and used it as a fucking excuse. Absolutely. Let's wrap up on this. What are the three questions that people should ask you but don't? Ooh, wow, dude, that is a world-class question. One of the three questions that people should ask me, but don't. You know what, mate, I'm struggling for an answer because I do those daily Q&As on Instagram and I get so many questions. What are the three questions that people should ask me, but don't? What is it about, what is it about coaching that I love? Two, what are my plans for the future? I very rarely get asked that. Three is what would I do if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now? Okay, which one of those do you want to take? I'll take, I'll let you choose. Which one suits you best? Okay, I'm I'm going to change it slightly. What are the challenges? What's your biggest challenge or the thing that you're wrestling with most in terms of your future plans? The thing that I'm wrestling with most is that I cannot clone me. The business that I've created relies a lot on me, my performance, personal brand. So we've got a team here. We've got a decent-sized team here. We've got, a, we've got guys that take a lot off my plate, but at the end of the day, they cannot replace me doing this right now. So that's the biggest thing I'm wrestling with is, I'm not even going to say time. I can't use that as an excuse. It's just the thing I'm wrestling with is a future beyond five, ten years. That's it. And it's a, it's a, but it's a nice challenge to have because it means I get to be creative. Like I have to be creative with what I do. You'd be the same. Like, I'm... I could train somebody to do the coaching, but the brand's been, the business has been built on me. But Robbins has done all right. <laughs> yeah. 
have you designed the business that you're going to become in five years? Not yet. Okay, so when will that happen? That will happen. Maybe good at this. Once I have signed this publishing deal that I'm going to sign with a big publishing house, that's the next step for me, I think. Right. Yeah. Have you identified the functions and the roles that you are going to need in order to achieve the outcomes that you want in that business five years hence? 50-50. I know who, I know what roles I want to fill. Yeah, that's the answer to a different question. But Is it? How you started with, I know who. So tell me this, if you were to design the, the roles, wiping out anyone that you know, I mean, we'll, we'll deal with them in a second. Yes. Excluding all of them, and you were to design the roles to fulfill the functions that you need and deliver the results that you needed based around the predictors of success, which are habit, attitudes, beliefs, and values, and cognitive abilities. Because when most people recruit, they recruit for skills, experience, and results. Yes. Which are lagging indicators. Yes. And they are no predictor of success. Yes. So what are the habits? For, to, I mean, pick any one of those roles that you're likely to need. It's a sales role, actually. Okay. So yeah. what are the habits that will make someone in that role successful? The habits that would make someone in, in that control. Being in charge of the state, for a start. I think state's a big thing when it comes to selling. The other habits that they would need to have is consistently picking up the phone. So prospecting habit, yep. Prospecting habit. The third one would be handling objections. The habit of handling objections, handling of ha- handling stalls. And the fourth habit would be, these are fucking great questions, mate. The fourth habit that I'd be looking for for somebody to do this sales role. Probably commitment to getting better. That's an attitude. Habit. Habits of behaviours done repeatedly without having to put your foot on their neck. Learning, yeah. Okay. What about planning? I think that's all I can think of for now. We've never actually hired a full-time salesperson yet. Yeah. What about planning and organizing? Planning and organizing? My uh, my missus does that. Oh, do you mean this new guy? Planning and organizing would be an interesting thing, yeah. Yeah. Listening, questioning. Listening. Yeah. Listening, asking world-class questions. So I challenge you on the objection handling. Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Prospects only object because the salesperson takes them there. Yeah. If they were halfway decent, they would neutralize the objection. Yes. They would raise it themselves. Nice. Nice. Then it's on their terms at their time of choosing. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Cool. I like it. Okay. I like it. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the idiot Paul's ear, age 23. Yes. One choice bit of advice. What bit of advice would you give him? 23 years old, idiot Paul, wasn't that long ago. (laughs) (laughs) 33-year-old Paul Moss, 39-year-old Paul Moss, still an idiot. What I asked him at 23, a little bit of advice. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. (laughs) That's a great bit of advice. I like that a lot. Don't believe everything you think. So tell me this. What, What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay heed to? What am I reading, watching, and listening to? I'm listening to Joe Rogan podcast quite a bit right now, and this is just this is just because I'm about to step into. I've been in the podcast game before, back in 2014. We did really well. We had your, we had the ultimate motivational guy Gary V on it. We had all these people on it. 
but I'm, I'm ready to step into that game again, but I want to do it really differently. So I'm listening to Rogan because obviously he's just got that. How much was... Did he see that deal he signed? Yeah, I think it was 60 million or something, wasn't it? Yeah, something fucking crazy like that, yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking at doing that podcast thing, which is why we're looking to have Mr. Fury on it and, and guys like that. that. So that's what I'm listening to. I am reading a book called Sovereignty by a guy called Ryan Meitschler. He's like a masculinity guy that I'm quite enjoying. And I'm watching um, Ozark on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Ozark was fun. I really enjoyed it. I love Ozark. Yeah, I watch about... um, Apparently, if I'm a motivational speaker, I shouldn't watch TV, right? Is that right? That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, you you don't watch TV. Hustlers don't watch TV, bro. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. Dude, that's the thing. Yeah, so I'm watching watching Ozark. Yeah, I'd recommend it. And also, because I do have this, this guy in me, The Last Dance on Netflix, we just finished that a couple of weeks ago. That was amazing. Yeah. So, so Joe Rogan, Ryan Meitchler's Sovereignty book, and um, Ozark. Also, a book that I just got yesterday that I'm really interested in, that you might be interested in, it's called Personality Isn't Permanent. It's about all these personality tests being bullshit. So that should be yeah. quite an interesting read. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. so personality isn't permanent. Personality isn't permanent. I read the first, I read the introduction this morning while I was having a poop. <laughs> I don't know why I wanted, I wanted to end on that. Let's end on shit. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't unsee that. Excellent. How can people get hold of you? And the best place to get hold of me is paulmort.uk or come and follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook, where there is probably only one Paul Mort, M O R T. Excellent. Paul Mort, thank you very much for an interesting, inspiring, and entertaining conversation. Marcus, thank you so much, mate. I've had an absolute blast. It's been, a, it's been a very... I do a lot of podcasts, and this has been one of the best ones I've been on, so thank you for that. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. It's beautiful. So this you. is Marcus Kauke signing off again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if there's somebody that you know who would make a great guest, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com and put us in touch, and I'll try and get them on as a guest. In the meantime, stay safe, happy selling. Bye-bye.